And so maybe it happens in this part of the world, but one of the major regular parts of family holidays where I'm from is the traveling convoy, right? When you're, when you're going on holiday, or as they would say there, vacation, uh, and you have a big enough family that takes multiple cars to, to carry everyone, there's a right and a wrong approach to driving on the interstate, the motorway, together. Right? The, the good convoy leader knows that they cannot just jet off into any open space in traffic, but have to watch the whole of traffic with an eye to making sure that the whole convoy, all the cars in the family, will be able to maneuver roughly together and keep going the same direction. Right, the, the, this convoy strategy has most at stake when only one person knows where we're going, right? If only one person in the group knows how, how to get to the destination, well, everybody's dependent on them. If leader who has that needed knowledge does not keep the group in mind as they go, well, then the group will splinter and, and may not get to the right destination, at least not without great difficulty. So being a poor convoy leader, which for our families in Alabama who tend to travel down to the Gulf Coast in droves, right, it's a big great and heinous offense to be that poor convoy leader. Now the point of this is that the Christian life is much like a convoy. The church, we are in the church, we are on this highway of the Christian life together, traveling toward our common destination of the new creation. As the church, if we do not keep each other in mind as we travel, we will splinter and some of us could end up having great difficulty along the way toward the destination. Now, Paul addressed an issue similar to this in 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34, but we're thinking about verses 27 and following, as he wrapped up this discussion specifically about the Lord's Supper. Remember, much of this letter has been occupied with the issue of divisions in the church in Corinth. Divisions over preaching in chapters 1 to 4. Divisions over ethics in chapters 5 to 7. Divisions over food ethics in chapters 8 to 10. And now, starting here in chapter 11, divisions over public worship. Here, the Lord's Supper in chapter 11. So, in this section, Paul readily lit into the Corinthians over this problem. After all, in the increasingly problematic list of issues... Preaching, ethics, worship, coming to the end in chapter 15, even the resurrection, a true gospel issue. Now the Corinthians had disrupted worship by making factions at the Lord's table. So far in this section about the supper, Paul highlighted how the Corinthian practice of, of tying the Lord's supper to a, to a wider meal together, a full meal together, had led to partiality at the table where some were actually excluded. Despite that being, despite that uh, tying the supper uh, to a full meal being an accepted practice uh, in, in the apostolic period, Paul said this church needed to change custom 
to support better the theological purpose of the supper. The reason for changing custom, as they needed to do, was that the requirements of the supper are fairly basic, straightforward, even minimal. The giving and receiving bread and wine blessed by a pastor using the biblical words of institution for the purpose of showing forth Christ's death. That makes the supper the supper, and so our circumstances need to support that. Those are the things we've covered in weeks past. And that brings us to where we are in our section tonight, verse 27 and following. And so the main point as we dive into this chunk in particular is that because because improper, unexamined eating provokes judgment, we should eat the supper in unity. Let me say it again. Because improper, unexamined eating provokes judgment, we should eat the supper in unity. So our three points tonight will be examination, encouragement, and eating. So let's think first about examination. This this passage, this closing paragraph in verses 27 to 34 contains three subsections and that 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 uh, division will drive the structure of our reflection tonight. There's three subsections here. So, verse just to just to overview that verses 27 to 30 conclude from from what is necessary for the supper described just above that. These verses conclude from what's necessary for the supper why there are specific problems in Corinth. So, problems there. Verse 31 and 32 then sets out an alternative way for them to conduct themselves. So the problem, or the resulting problem, alternative conduct. And then finally, verses 33 and 34 infer how they should move ahead uh, in hosting the supper together. So the problem, the alternative, and then advice going ahead. So this point, where we are now, examination, thinks about verse 27 to 30. So drawing on the words of institution that Paul had just quoted in verses 23 to 26, which, which set apart our observance of the Lord's Supper as, as a corporate proclamation of Christ's death, Paul infers from that that unworthy observance brings guilt upon the unworthy eater. We see that as he said, let's, let's turn our, let's read it together and I'll sort of try to unpack it as we go. So he, Paul writes, whoever therefore, okay, so he's saying, meaning because of the improper and, or sorry, because of the proper and necessary conduct at the Lord's Supper that I just described in the words of institution, because of those words of institution, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Now, before we run off <laughs> down the down other lines of thought, let's pause right there. Because this warning, which is a genuine point to consider, ha- has, I think, taken on a life of its own in the church as we think about what believers are to do to approach the table in the right way. 
think everybody has, has their own ideas about that, but, but sometimes we, we think quite fantastically about that. There are hosts even of godly believers who feel guilty and overwhelmed coming to the Lord's table or may even refuse to eat the Lord's Supper at all because they are not assured that they can partake in a worthy manner. One of the things I hope everyone takes away from the way, from the way that I try to open the Bible up for us together, uh, that you can use yourselves, is to let the scripture itself tell you what it means. And I think sometimes we hear these, these sort of catchphrases and we allow ourselves to fill in the blank. We put our own meaning into that phrase rather than reading what the scripture tells us it means. So one of the ones that we can do, we, we can be very imaginative with phrases like unworthy manner. We hear that and start to put in our guesses about what the content of unworthy means. And I want all of us just to think here especially, but even just as an application for when you read other passages, what what does this passage tell us? What does the Bible tell us this passage means? So because verse 28 explains the worthy manner is. If not saying you have to do this, not not endorsing it one way or the other, listen to the big if at the front. This is perhaps not the most controversial thing I've ever said, but if you write in your Bible, if you do, you should probably insert the word rather at the beginning of beginning of verse twenty eight. Rather at the beginning of verse 4. What's the point of that, though? Of adding that contrastive word. Don't eat in an unworthy manner, as Paul has just said, but instead, but instead, rather let a person examine himself then, or therefore, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. The worthy manner of eating and drinking is to examine yourself as you come to the table. And verse 29 supports that further. For, because, right, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some of you have died. So, worthy eating simply means you take a look at your Christian life. Do I have faith before you come? This is why Reformed churches require profession of faith to partake the supper, whereas baptism signifies regeneration, which God sovereignly works on a person entirely apart from their personal position and, and stance. And so that's rightly depicted in the baptism of our children. The supper, on the other hand, signifies sanctification and nourishment, which in fact does require our thoughtful participation. A person in this case must examine themselves and in that manner, that worthy, namely self-examining manner with a credible profession of faith, 
come to the table. Because, because some were not examining themselves, Paul concluded that is why some church members had even died. Think about that, though, for a second. God does indeed take the sacraments very seriously. Would, I mean, the big question trailing out of that, would he still kill someone for improperly receiving the supper? Now, that's a different question from does he do that regularly, which is obviously no. Would he? I don't know. In the early church, as seen in Acts 5, 1 to 11, with Ananias and Sapphira, he acted more directly to protect the fledgling church. Paul clearly, in this section here, is harking back to 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 5, where Israel was baptized and ate the spiritual food, but their rebellion resulted in their deaths. And so the supper requires examination. And if you have looked at yourself to see true faith in Jesus as you come to the table, we have to accept, we have to believe too. Christ welcomes you in that instance. If we have examined ourselves, found ourselves to believe in Christ, Christ welcomes us to the table. That brings us to our second point. Encouragement, whereas you, you can see where it's going to build right upon where we just ended. Whereas that first subsection drew from the words of institution to rebuke those who had distorted the Lord's Supper by making it a, a meal about their prestige rather than about looking at their faith to examine it, to strengthen it, sorry. Our next section here that we'll, we'll think about sets out the alternative. So there's the unexamined coming to the table, and then, on the other hand, what Paul's about to tell us. It contrasts with those who ate and drank without discerning the body, and because of that fell sick or died. So let's look at verse 31 and 32, and we'll, we'll go through it and kind of try to expand it a little as we go again here too. So uh, starting in verse 31, but, so there's our contrast, Right? On the other hand, in contrast to the people who ate without discerning the body and so fell ill, in contrast to that, if we judged ourselves truly, namely by looking at the spiritual matter of the supper as we examine our faith, we would not be judged. Namely, what does that mean? True, true believers don't fall sick and die as they eat the supper. But... Another contrast right there. So rather instead, when we are judged by the Lord, we believers are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Notice here that Paul described, I mean, I, I think this is one of the questions believers always have. Can we fall under God's judgment? Well, in one sense, no. In another sense, if, if you want to say, there, there's a few different words in the New Testament that sort of all come out as judgment, and that's not a problem. Um, we just miss some nuance. But in the sense that we could, Paul tells us what it means. Right? It's not God's wrath falling upon you. He says it's not like whatever happened to those who became ill and died. He says it's a discipline. 
God's judgment for believers is discipline. Hebrews 12, 9-11 explains exactly what this means. Let me read that for you. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us. There's our our, uh, link to explain this passage. Earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us, earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he, God the Father, disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So, in light of that, and what Paul is telling us about the supper, how should we think about our use of the Lord's meal? I really want you to catch this. Like If you, if you haven't caught the, the rest of the details, here's... Here's the one to grab. God uses the supper to improve believers. God uses the supper to improve believers. So, what does that tell us? This, the Lord's Supper is truly a meal for nourishment. Now, let's think about this in daily life, right? You eat a steak because you feel weak and need energy to go about carrying out other physical tasks, right? I eat because I need sustenance to keep going. It is, and so in that, in that situation, is it a condition? I think this is something we really have to think about as we translate into a spiritual meal. Is, is the condition for dinner, as you, as that steak sits in front of you, is the condition to get to eat it that you're already fed? And full of energy? No. Right, that's, that's actually the opposite of the purpose of that meal. So too with the Lord's Supper, isn't it? And I think, I think we don't pay enough attention to this a lot of times. I think a lot of people feel overwhelmed as they come to the table and questioning, is this for me? You don't need to be spiritually fed and full of spiritual energy as you come to the table. In fact, we eat it because we need nourishing. We need its help. We we need God to work in us through it rather than meeting the bar to get to be fed. Westminster Larger Catechism 172 asks us, may, may one who doubts of his being in Christ, or, and underline this one, may one who doubts of his being in Christ or of his due preparation come to the Lord's Supper. If I, if I, if I don't have, if I don't feel fully assured, or if I, if I don't even 
feel like I've given everything I should have to preparation. Never will. Can I take of this meal? Answer, absolutely yes. You, in fact, need it in those instances. That's not how the catechism puts it, but that's my summary. They say, one who doubts of his being in Christ or of his due preparation to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper may have true interest in Christ, though he be not assured thereof. And in God's account has it, if he be duly affected with the apprehension of the want of it, of assurance, the lack of assurance. And if he unfeignedly desires to be found in Christ and to depart from iniquity. By the way, if you're worried as you come to the table, if you've done due diligence, that's evidence that you long to depart from iniquity. In which case, because promises are made and the sacrament is appointed for the relief, listen to this, it's appointed for the relief even of weak and doubting Christians. He is to bewail his unbelief and labor to have his doubts resolved. And so doing, he may and ought to come to the Lord's Supper that he may be further strengthened. God is not a demanding God, but the God ready to strengthen his people when they are weak. This is, this is why, maybe you've caught it, maybe you haven't. Every time we have the supper, at least when I preside over the table, what do I say? It's a meal for Christians, whether strong or struggling. God uses this meal precisely for those who are needy and hungry spiritually. It is for our encouragement to assure us that we do have a share in Christ as we take hold of him by faith, just as surely as you receive bread and wine in your mouth, you receive Christ into your heart by faith. God is good to us because he gives us, he gives us the same gospel in multiple ways. Here's what, as he, he it's very obvious, right, that he, he presents Christ to us through the word, because Christ is described as we explain other words that describe Christ. As he, just as in the same way that he presents Christ to us in the word, he presents Christ to us in the sacraments. God, God presents the same word of promise that can be heard and held. Heard and held. God's promises are given to you. The supper is then not for our condemnation, not for to add to our feelings of guilt, but for our encouragement. And that brings us to our third point. Eating. So 20, verses 27 to 30 describe the proper manner of coming to the table, verses 31 and 32 described why the supper is good for us 
as it builds us up. And now verses 33 to 34 draw a conclusion about how the supper should be practiced going forward for Corinth at least. So verse 33. So then, another inference, right? And this is the bit, I want to, I want to milk this, this connection, right? So then, because of what I've said, infer from, from all the things about using the Lord's Supper to strengthen you, infer from that, my brothers, when you come to, together to eat, wait for each other. So why, why, here's the question I had as I was trying to untangle this. Paul's got this therefore, right? And, and what, so then, why does this, why does the Lord's discipline to improve his people through the Lord's Supper, why does that lead to the practice that we need to wait for one another? What's, why does one follow from the other? Because the church is a convoy traveling together. Right? The Lord's table is not for you by yourself, but for us as a church. So as we travel toward the table, our examination cannot be discontinued. Just like I said, right? the, the heinous offense as the convoy leader is not to take account of where everyone is so that they can go with you. And so as we travel toward the table, our self-examination cannot be disconnected from taking account of how well others are keeping with us. And if our path to the table, if there's enough room in the direction that we take to get there, can accommodate the people going with us in the church. This does not mean... (laughs) To head off the objection, this does not mean that individual church members are responsible to be monitoring the congregation to police who comes to the table. That's not what I mean by keeping track of each other. It simply means that our observation of the supper is meant to further the faith of every member partaking. So the supper is not just about strengthening you, What about strengthening the unity of the church? Remember that this letter blasts through issue after issue after issue concerning divisions in the Corinthian church. And so he's saying, wait and eat together, making sure that this is a unified church. Paul highlighted again then that the supper must focus on these spiritual aspects of strength, giving strength to faith, and giving strength to unity. It's nourishment for your faith and nourishment for our church unity. Verse 34 concedes, if anyone's hungry, let them eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About other things, I'll give directions when I come. There are other matters for him to teach. That's what he says at the end. But he exhorts them not to use the supper as a normal meal. This isn't that kind of, this isn't that kind of meal. And that's because the Lord's Supper isn't for showing prestige in a congregation. It's not for displaying who's friends with whom. It's for showing forth Christ's death until he comes. And it's eating, it's eating is for tying 
the convoy back together. So let, let our conversation as the church, I mean, right, because as we think about the table, we all come with the same thing in mind, right? I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness. And that levels the playing field. There's no prestige within that. If you're condemned by your works and need God's grace, there's not really a ranking system. We're all equal as we approach the Lord's table. And so why not be unified? And so let our conversations with one another be about pointing each other to Christ. The church is is the embassy of a particular city, to think about how we put this this morning. The New Jerusalem. Embracing people of true faith from every tribe, tongue, nation, culture, opinion, I mean, even political persuasion. We express that. We express that by setting aside divisions about circumstantial things for Jesus Christ who unites. And that, that is in fact what unites everyone who's in this room. And in fact, Jesus is bigger and more important than any of those other factors. That's why we need to be concerned with one another. As we do that, as we express our unity by focusing on Christ rather than whatever else, we see the truth of divine reconciliation in practice, don't we? Grounded in Christ's death, His work to bring us back to God, forgive our sins, rising from the grave so that He might intercede so that we are everlastingly at peace with God. All of that's received by faith. We are reunited with God. Every aspect of alienation and hostility removed. And that should characterize people. Not, not because we suck it up and get past, but because we have received this amazing grace. Removing every Wall of, wall of uh, alienation, tearing down things that divide. God brings people together and bring them, brings them together in Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we are glad that you feed your people, that you care for our nourishment, that you don't set a high bar of expectation for people who need to be fed, who need your help to walk faithfully with you. Rather, you welcome people to the table so that you might care for them and give them the strength that they need to persevere. We're thankful that you are a generous and providing God. We're thankful that you put us in the church and that you bring us together. And we pray that you would work that in us. Help us to be excited about the affection that we have for one another. Help us to be excited about setting aside the way we may see things differently about the world or how we come from different places and and have different cultural preferences. Help us to be excited about the fact that you save so many different kinds of people and you give us to one another that we might make each other better, that we might know you more deeply. We pray we would know you more deeply, that we would. the next time we eat this meal, we would think of these things, of how we are strengthened by you 
and needy sinners are nourished. And we know that that's not a truth that comes to us in the supper and not in the word. And so we ask that as we have considered your word, you would do that for us tonight. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.